I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today, I'm here with Hunter Thompson. Hunter, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate having you. Hunter uh, probably doesn't need a lot of introduction, but uh, full-time real estate investor and founder of ASIM Capital. Uh, He's helped more than 400 retail investors uh, acquire over 150 million in mobile home parks, self-storage, retail office, ATM machines, of which I'm a personal uh, (laughs) participant in, and cryptocurrency. Uh, He's also the host of the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, and uh, he wrote a best-selling book, Raising Capital for Real Estate. So, uh, we, we go on go on a long list of all your accomplishments, Hunter. But again, thank you for coming on the show. And and I would love it if you could just kind of maybe give people that don't know you a bit of your background and, and your story. Sure. So, you know, first of all, just kind of lead with this. I was always the person that could never get a job. I was always like very entrepreneurial from a young age. I always wanted to avoid uh, having a boss and stuff like that. So when I was in college, I started playing poker online. And that was really um, my first foray into entrepreneurship at the time, something that happened in 2003 called the poker boom, which created a tremendous rush of excitement. I'll just really quickly for those that don't know, Around that time period, someone very close to where I live in Memphis um, entered a tournament that was $17, won that tournament that got him a tournament into a $200 entry fee, won that tournament, which got him an entry fee into a $10,000 tournament. And that won him what's called the main event. It's a, you know the main world series of poker. And he won a million dollars. And it created a massive interest in the space because any random person on the couch could win a million dollars in poker. And to add kind of gasoline to the fire, uh, his legal name was Chris Moneymaker. I'm sure a lot of you recognize that name. I, I do. I do. So that was really my entrance into the space because I recognized, look, there's an opportunity here. If I took it seriously, if I got a coach, if I you know, thought of it as a business, I could basically get a summer job working for myself. And so that's how I got into the world of entrepreneurship and poker was basically banned in the United States on the tail end of when I was doing that. And right after that, the real estate crash happened. And so I was just in this unique position where I wasn't at all impacted by the financial markets crashing, but had an opportunity to invest in real estate for the first time and at the most favorable time in the history of the United States. And so really quickly, I didn't really go all in on real estate at first. I was actually just interested in stocks and bonds and day trading, trying to learn what I could reading books. And it wasn't until 2010 happened that I was completely blindsided by something that almost no one talks about, which is the European debt crisis. That was like a moment where after all this reading and studying, now everyone in the corporate media and including the financial sector was focused on the Greece bond yields. And it was like, if I had a hundred Wharton grad employees focusing on how to predict the future and economics, none of them would have said the Greece bond yields. And even if one of them had, I probably would have been like, 
what are you talking about? No one like get out of my office. Right. And I didn't have a hundred Wharton grads. So I had to find an investment vehicle that was going to create predictable outcomes based on supply and demand and not, you know, unique and a historical financial products or derivatives markets and things that were beyond my comprehension. And so I was not originally just interested in real estate. I just found my way circuitously looking at things on a risk adjusted basis. So here we are. Yeah. I mean, I'm- Definitely the first person that sort of got their start in, in poker, as far as I <laughs> that I've talked to on the on the podcast. Um, no, that's that's really cool, and and I know, uh, you know, you, well, I saw you in, in several panels on stage at the Best Ever Conference, and we, they had the debate about you know kind of the, the, at the conference the debate was more about okay what what's twenty twenty two going to look like in comparison to twenty twenty one. The, the debate was great listening to all of you sort of go back and forth with it. I loved it. But but interestingly, I think, you know, we're only a few months out from that. But I think that the the financial markets, the data, the, the, the what's happening with debt, interest rates, all of that has become forefront to everybody's mind sort of in the investing space. And so and maybe maybe some of your opinion has changed even since that debate. But do you want to talk a little bit about that? You know, and we can start wherever you like, but I know people are people are asking about, you know, the, the big thing that gets in the media is interest rates, right? The interest yeah, rates absolutely. are going to go up. So, so maybe start us off with, you know, kind of your thoughts and, and what where you think things are headed. And, and and I'm sure you can share with us kind of why. Absolutely. So first of all, I'm very excited to, to come on here and talk about this because I just got done interviewing 22 people on this exact topic because we are about to launch a summit on this topic of how to navigate these choppy waters in this economic environment. Um, it's a free summit and you can learn more about that at 100k2invest.com, but I'll give you the summary really quickly. Um, this is a really important moment as an investor because there is, in the wake of COVID in 2020, there is a trillion dollar liquidity rate wave that is heading for United States real estate from my perspective. And those who are caught on the sidelines are to a large degree going to be eaten up by inflation. And those who can surf the wave to continue the metaphor are gonna be very glad that they did in three and four and five and 10 years. And I am, very much interested in economics. I always have been. That's why I was focused on the European debt crisis. And I'm generally speaking, very skeptical. But while we just recently had you know, the inversion of the yield curve, which historically speaking is an accurate predictor of recessions, I here want to make a case for why that indicator is not reflective of why people should be on the sidelines right now. In fact, they should be intelligently participating. And I'm I'm happy to walk through a bunch of data points and then how to do that. But that's generally my view. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm personally, as an investor, happy to hear you say that, that, you know, there's there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. But um, but yet yeah, let, let's talk about some of that data and some of the people you interviewed, you know, what what they're because I, I know you have access to, you know, high level people in in the financial markets. And so I, I think whatever you've gleaned from them and, and your own uh opinions on it, you know, we would love to hear. Sure. So, you know, first of all, let's talk about interest rates, but through the context of inflation, all right, this, this $10 trillion wave of liquidity, including, you know, another, let's say 10 trillion of recently printed money when you include the last 12 years or so, what does that create? You know, if, if supply is stagnant and 
uh, the demand for that supply increases drastically because of printed capital, there is inflation. And I'm a big proponent of the Austrian School of Economics. And the way that they define inflation is slightly different than the way that most people think about it. So if, from my perspective, the increasing of the money, the money supply is the definition of inflation. It doesn't matter if prices necessarily increase because if an apple is $8 and then there's a recession and you print $100 billion and the price of an apple stays $8, most people would say there's no inflation. But from my perspective, there necessarily is inflation because of the printing of that money. Another way of looking at it is maybe that apple was going to go down by 40% in price, but because the money was printed, now the Apple price stays the same. So that's something to think about. But as this tidal wave of liquidity is coming towards us, I think the United States real estate is very well positioned to be the benefactor of it. A lot of people discuss real estate being a hedge against inflation. That is true. But it is a massive tailwind for real estate investors because of basically four reasons. The first is what most people think about when money is printed, asset prices increase the price is increasing. And that's what most people think about inflation. But another piece of this is that real estate is traded on a multiple of income, net income. So most, let's say multifamily investors, their plan is to buy a property, implement a value add strategy. And then once the business plan is implemented, the anticipation is that rental rates will increase basically at the same rate of inflation. Do you follow me so far? Okay. So once the business plan is implemented, you would anticipate that gross income, mostly rental income, and expenses would track along at a one-to-one ratio if you're being conservative, right? So if inflation is going at 5%, you would think rental rates would go at 5% per year and expenses would go at 5% per year. And I'm on board with that. I think that's a reasonable and conservative way to underwrite your deals. But gross income and expenses are not at a one-to-one ratio. Most mobile home parks, multifamily, in particular self-storage, it's usually 40% or even in self-storage cases in the 30s, meaning that the gross is increasing by 5% per year, the expenses are increasing at 5% per year, but only a fraction of the gross is going to pay off expenses. So the net is actually increasing every single year. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, that's the, that's the goal of inflation aside. That's the goal when you're when you get into these you know multifamily value adds is that you're you're growing you know essentially what the net as you said over time. That's exactly right. So inflation further assists you to implement the business plan in terms of growing NOI on which the real estate is actually valued. But then there's another. So that's a really important piece of this. If it was a fifty percent operating expense ratio and gross income increased by 5% and expenses increased by 5%, it would be a wash if the ratio is 50-50. But since it's like 30-70 or 40-60, you're the benefactor of the increasing in the net. But the other piece of this that so few people talk about is what happens to the debt that you borrow to purchase these assets. If I'm buying a $13 million property and I'm putting down $3 million and borrowing $10 million. The purchase price, I guess I should say, the purchasing power of that $10 million 
is eroded by inflation. So much so that if inflation tracks along at 8% per year, the purchasing power of that $10 million is cut in half over a 10-year period, meaning that the dollars that you're paying the bank as you get into years 10, 11, 12, 13, et cetera, are like half as valuable from a purchase price standpoint, purchase power standpoint, as they were when you made the loan. So your first question was about interest rates. That's something that every real estate investor is focused on. But I want to move the Overton window because currently we have negative real rates. If inflation is at 8% and interest rates are at 4%, people are concerned if they move to 5%, they're still paying you 3% per year to borrow, to buy an asset that will likely increase with inflation. This is like the ultimate triangle of favorable real estate situations when it comes to inflation. Now, this does not talk about the consumer. This does not talk about if this is moral. This does not talk about if this is what people should be doing, but this is the reality. The $10 trillion has been pushed into existence, and now the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poorer. And I don't want to be on the losing side of that equation, and I don't want my investors to as well. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. This And this may be kind of a a stupid question in the sense that when you say there's this wave of liquidity coming and it's, if I'm understanding correctly, you're breaking that down into the money that was printed as being 10 trillion, but also another $10 trillion. Where's that coming from? Well, generally speaking, we've opened the Pandora's box of central banking uh, starting particularly in 2008. Um, And I believe I don't remember the exact number, but I know that we got into the trillions. You know, initially I think it was 700 billion, and then eventually a trillion and more um, in terms of Fed balance sheet dollars. Now there has been a lot of discussions around rising interest rates and quantitative easing, but the underlying thesis remains the same. They can push the button, the printing press button, and. They pushed it in 2008, they pushed it again in 2020, and I think they're going to push it again every single time that they have some sort of sneeze. The Fed and the political realm are very intertwined, meaning that the likelihood that a Fed chairman is going to knowingly and willingly increase interest rates in such a way to knowingly bring us into a very significant recession slash depression, I think that is a thing of the past. I think the future looks a lot more like Japan, where you have very high debt to GDP ratio, um, very low growth. And yet, when recessions happen, they do not result in, let's say, 10% unemployment. Now, I'm not an advocate of any of that. I think Japan is a perfect example of what not to do. But there are people that disagree with me that tend to have far more control than me that think that that's the model of where we should go. And so probably around the time that I started growing up a little bit, I started realizing I can do 400 podcasts about why we shouldn't do any of this stuff, or I can start doing what I think is in the best interest of my investors. And so that's, you know... If you want to have me back on one day, we can talk about like the morality of this whole situation, but that's not the intention today. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Certainly there's, <laughs> there are those questions as well. And so the other thing that that I've noticed, you know, that everybody's, everybody's worried about the interest rates going up and that's fine. I, I, I get the concern, but the, the interest rates were historically low. And now to me, it seems like 
we're just kind of getting back to going back to a more normal range. And, and people have made money in real estate at all different levels of interest rate, even in the teens. Yes. So it, it's kind of like, to me, yes, it's, it's not as good as having, you know, a 3% interest rate, but still, if you're doing it right, you still have, you know, the opportunity to make money. And, and specifically for all the reasons you just listed, you know, with, with inflation in the mix. Yes, it's important to intelligently participate. And that doesn't mean to buy everything. We can talk about some of our investment criteria, but it means to intelligently participate. Like as an example, though this, that I'm making a kind of self-aggrandizing statement, listening to this podcast is one of those things, right? So I'm trying to say, get out there, focus on education, grow your network, grow your confidence so that you can make moves that you're going to be able to sleep well at night and will likely produce favorable returns. So just real quick about interest rates. Um, you mentioned that I've had the opportunity to interview some high-level people, which I'm very, very grateful for. And I mean, I know that you're a listener to the show. Like, I cannot thank you enough. Like the support of the listener base has resulted in, I'm just very grateful for you. So thank you very much. Um, one of those people is Ethan Pinner, who's credited by and credited for basically creating the commercial mortgage-backed security tool which is insane. He literally is the father of that. So um, I was able to interview him a while ago and he mentioned, if you Google the hundred year, you know, federal interest rate or the 10 year US treasury bond interest rate history of the last hundred years. And he said, you know, he's a savant. So he's like, I could stare at that all day. And I feel like he's not joking around, but there's a really important piece here. Um, over the last 40 years, people have been kind of jumping up and down on rooftops, asking when are interest rates going to rise back to quote historical norms. And if you've been investing, thinking that interest rates are going to hit 8%, uh, you have been investing incorrectly and costing yourself and your investors capital. And I mean, serious, serious money. And there's a lot of people I respect that sold everything in 2017. And I mean, like multifamily assets, quality assets, oh, cap yeah. rates can't go any lower. I really think over, and if you look at this chart, you'll see what I see, which is that this trajectory is down and to the right. There's a very unique thing that happens from the 70s to the the 90s or so. But other than that, trajectory is down to the right. I think that asking when interest rates are going to rise back to hit quote historical norms is the wrong question. I personally think that the way the political realm is set up, the way the incentives are set up, the way the Pandora's box has been opened, I think the question is far more likely when are interest rates going to go negative? That would drastically shift the Overton window of where cap rates could go. And I think that Europe and Japan are the future of the United States in terms of the bond market, in terms of the cap rate market, in terms of everything in between. So maybe I'm wrong, and we're certainly not underwriting to assume that I'm right. You know, we underwrite to assume that we're going to see about 10 basis points of cap rate expansion per year in the markets that we're trading in. But I actually think the opposite might be the case, which is difficult to say or difficult to hear to a lot of people that are very skeptical and constantly looking for some 20% correction in real estate, though, historically speaking, that's very, very rare. Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't. It doesn't makes sense from a, you know, on paper, I think you can kind of make it look however you want, but it doesn't make sense, like sort of being in the market shopping deals and, and seeing where prices are at to think that cap rates are going to change 
go up drastically given that rents are going up drastically and like the actual income produced by the assets is going up drastically. So, so yeah, I mean, maybe it levels off a little bit in terms of pricing for a little while, but I, I just don't, it's hard to think that it, it, we're just going to flip this switch and everything's going to suddenly go in the other direction as it has been going, I, I, I guess. So I, I, I mean, as, in essence, I'm, I'm agreeing with you a lot less eloquently is, is really what, what I'm saying. And it, it seems to be that that is, there's a lot of fear-based media uh, out there in terms of what, you know, to, to watch out for. Can I add some context to that? Because I think you're touching yeah. on a lot of couple things. So um, household and nonprofit organizations net worth all-time highs basically increased about 20% since 2020. That is not evenly distributed amongst all income and net worth levels, meaning that those who owned assets which increased with inflation were massively the benefactor of 2020. Um, those who are on fixed income, for example, are going to be the losers in that scenario. Um, the per income per capita, personal income per capita is at all-time highs, you know, historically speaking. When you hear those two data points, you can kind of think, okay, well, that could be the case. Net worth can increase drastically and be at all-time highs. If everyone's leveraged to the moon, it wouldn't mean that the consumer is in a position of health. It would just mean that everyone borrowed so much money that their net worth increased. But the reality is, especially where interest rates are today, um, debt service, household debt service payments, not only are they not near all-time highs, they're actually at 40-year lows. So you see soaring income, soaring net worth, and 40-year low in terms of debt payments. Now, part of that is because of low interest rates, but there's just there's far more room between all those metrics than I think most people think. Does that make sense? In the sense that yeah. I like a lot of people think, man, we're right on the edge of what's possible, and perhaps that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, it, I, yeah, it make, that makes total sense. I think if if with our our unemployment is is basically nearly back to what it was pre-pandemic levels which was essentially all-time lows correct me if i'm wrong there but you know that that we've we've almost completely recovered from an employment standpoint and and probably a, a lot of it has to do with the you know people essentially leaving the workplace right so it it's not even necessarily that we <laughs> couldn't fill those jobs anymore, or we don't, you know what I mean? We don't have the jobs to fill. It's people don't want to go back to them. So there, there are, the world is just different and yet still people don't, want, but, but still we have this low unemployment rate. So it's kind it seems like all of the other metrics are really, really good. Interest rates might come up a little bit. It doesn't mean that, you know, the world is over. Correct. But now we got to paint a more realistic picture because obviously, you know, I love marketing. I know how to hook people in and get them excited to watch a podcast or whatever. And so a lot of the, I made some pretty bold claims for context. I believe everything I just said, but we got to put some caveats on participating in this space. Is it cool with you if we kind of shift gears and talk about Oh that? yeah. Yeah, okay. let's do. So despite having access to guys like the person that is credited with inventing commercial mortgage-backed securities, that's cool as a little humble brag, but now you do too. You can literally Google my name and listen to that interview. And this information is commoditized. It is easily accessible for free. By the way, we don't even have ads on my 
my podcast. So it's like, it is literally accessible to everyone, which is really awesome. Meaning that none of this information is secret. The secret is out in a big, big way. And hordes of cash, not only those data points I just mentioned, not only that, but there is uh, billions, billions, all-time high in terms of cash reserves across private equity groups, pension funds, et cetera. They're all waiting for some opportunity to participate. And it's creating a very competitive environment, especially for multifamily. So you start to hear things that make no sense and give investors pause. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a coaching side of our business. One of our coaching clients, we teach people how to raise capital because that's like the other side of what we do. And one of our clients went in to buy a property, a $40 million property, I believe. And the broker called him and said, hey, sorry, you got outbid. Um, it's not going to work. And he said, well, what happened? What'd they offer? We'll double it or we'll match it, whatever it is. And they said, oh, um, it's going to go for 60. They were outbid by $20 million on a $40 million purchase. So when you hear that, you're like, this can't be the case. This is the sign of a bubble. Another example is that same kind of person tried to put down a quarter million dollars down non-refundable day one. Holy crap. The buyer ended up putting down a million dollars down non-refundable day one. So maybe that group is incompetent. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. Maybe they have a low cost of capital and all the other excuses that we can come up with. But I happen to invest with a group that just put a million dollars down non-refundable day one, and they are far from incompetent. The reality is they know so much more about that property and that market than any of their competitors that they have the confidence to go to close with a million dollars, not of investor capital, a million dollars down non-refundable day one. It just so happens that they have about $750 million of real estate all within a 40 mile radius. They know the vintage, the size, they have market, they have three properties within a five mile radius. They know they have the same property management company, which is vertically integrated. They know the operating expense ratio. They know exactly what rents the property is going to charge because their property that they currently own is right down the street charging the same thing and is actually $50 above pro forma rents. That's the type of investment opportunities that I'm looking for right now. Savvy, sophisticated investors and operators that have a massive market advantage created by knowledge, business plan implementation, software, team members, et cetera, you name it, where this is not replicatable. And the groups in New York who are trying to buy the property think, wow, those guys are cowboys, but let's see how it plays out because the predictability that that's going to go right is much higher because it's simply a rinse and repeat. So those are the types of things I'm looking for. Yeah, that makes sense. You, you once you have that sort of market knowledge of where you've you've got that level of investment, that level of assets under management, circuit, you, you don't. It, it's, it makes it very easy to analyze a property and know, hey, this is this is what our expense ratios are going to be. This is what we can charge for rent because we're charging that rent across the street. Like yes. we just make them all the same, and so you become essentially your own competition. And so, yeah, in terms of, you know, investing, especially as a passive investor, those, those are the good deals to look for. And the people that have that, that level of market knowledge in their specific region. So that makes, makes total sense. Um, any other tips on that in terms of, you know, what you think people should look for as far as from a passive investor standpoint? So, I'd say that a lot of groups are 
the way that economics works, like the what most people refer to as like microeconomics, which is the nature of supply and demand and doing the same thing once over and over again gives you a market advantage. And that's the way that capitalism works in the sense that um, I, and this is something that Milton Friedman made famous, no single person knows how to make a pencil. It takes people all over the world acting differently because the graphite is from this country, the rubber is from this country, the person that makes the steel, like these are like international discussions that are taking place to a level of sophistication that no human being or machine could predict or replicate, et cetera. So what that means is it's really good to get very good at one thing so that you can be better than your competitors. You get all these things like economies of scale and specialization and market advantage, like we just talked about. The problem is that that benefit of economics is not sympathetic to what most people would think of when it comes to financial planning. Meaning that if you have a really compelling investment thesis, why the East coast of Florida is going to be a massive benefactor of this massive migration change in the demographics. And you think that senior living on the East coast of Florida is like the place to be. And you build your whole business around senior living in the East coast of Florida as a passive investor. That's amazing, but I don't want to have my whole net worth tied up there. Because everyone knows once a year, we all take a big breath and go, oh gosh, it's hurricane season. What's about to happen to my whole property and my whole net worth, my whole portfolio. Um, so as a passive investor, though, you get to rely on someone else's specialization in their particular niche, geographic location, risk profile, et cetera. So everyone feels like their one niche is the best. And I felt like I didn't want to build a portfolio around that belief. So I built a business called ASIM Capital, which is an aggregator of these different strategies where we leverage our pre-existing relationships to invest in these different niches. And so I invest in all of our deals, but I'm not a sponsor. I have a due diligence process, which is extremely robust, the likes of which if you had infinite time, infinite money, and your investment amounts were infinitely large, you'd probably do the same thing, but a $100,000 investor can't spend hundred hours on due diligence running around the country trying to figure this stuff out, but cumulatively we as a group can. And so um, that's what we do at ASIM Capital. So you're, yeah, you're, you're essentially funding for other, other sponsors, basically other operators, you're, you're funding their deals. And so you're vetting those sponsors and then bringing your investors in uh, to help, you know, raise capital for those other groups. What do you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, sort of having a fund and, and how that works and, and kind of the mechanics of it for maybe both from a, from, from your standpoint, but, but also from, from the sponsors that are kind of coming to you as being a fund for their deals. Yeah, sure. So like you mentioned, like what I do professionally is raise capital for deals that I'm investing in. And we don't do this with a lot of groups. We Let's say we have five or six groups that we invest and plan on investing tens of millions of dollars with each over the next several years. And so really it's similar to what we were just talking about, right? What I like to do is focus on the capital raising, marketing, public speaking side of things. And I don't really like talking about what paint color the property needs or, you know, getting things cleaned up on the asset. It's just not my skill set. And I don't really have the eye for that level of detail from an operations standpoint. Other people are like, you want to talk to investors? Why do you want to do that? So I want to find groups that 
need kind of an, uh, an investor relations arm for their business so that they can scale significantly. And so we've kind of done the division of labor within a real estate firm, as opposed to be a partner of one firm. Uh, we are kind of an investor relations arm of several, let's say less than 10 at all times sponsors. And so they can do what they'd love best, which is not, you know, talking on podcasts. What they need to be doing is talking to brokers, underwriting deals, you know, underwriting 70 deals to get one, dealing with, you know, really specific underwriting stuff, having the pulse of the market, joining commissions in their city. These are the things that sponsors that we work with are doing all day, every day. And so we can plug the gap. If they need $10 million for the next purchase, maybe they might raise three. One of our competitors might raise three and we might raise the rest. And so that's how it works. Yeah. Your, so what criteria do you use to select which sponsors you want to work with? And I know, I know you are, you know, sort of have that diversification amongst several different asset classes. So how do you, what's that process? How do you, how do you decide who to work with? So if you actually Google seven stages of due diligence, ASIM capital, which is A-S-Y-M capital, again, seven stages of due diligence, um, you'll find episode 361 where I talk about the exact thing I just outlined, the seven stages of due diligence, which is basically, um, you know, my keynote presentation at our conference a couple of years ago, where I walk through it. It basically starts with the sponsor and 80% of it is about the sponsor. And then finding a way to read between the lines as I go through a ton of details, such as um, the property manager, the softwares that they use, the legal documents that they use, the underwriting assumptions, the market, the size of the asset, the property specific stuff, just a, a ton of detail in terms of each step that ends up, you know, on a pass fail. And like I mentioned, you know, there are great deals in all stages of the economic cycle. So we're happy to pass on a bunch of things, find a couple of groups that we think really align with us and then go all in on their thesis. Yeah. And that was, that was actually kind of what my next question was going to be. I assume once you go through all that work to vet a sponsor and you, you, you know, really find someone that you have faith in probably at that point, you're, you know, kind of locked in on them. And it, it, if you formed that connection, like, as you mentioned, you don't need to have 50 or a hundred different sponsors to, to be working with. You, you, you want a handful of really good ones. So that's exactly right. It's the best way to build a business. And I'm not throwing rocks. There's some people that have a different approach. It's more of a spray and pray investment thesis. And I understand they're taking the view of diversification and kind of maximizing it. But I do not like that strategy personally for myself, because if I'm spending, if I'm sending a check, which is not material to me, I do not take due diligence seriously. And that's not a good way to be an investor. I want to be very inclined to check every single box every single time. And especially the case when you're talking about investor capital. So, you know, not only do we go through that whole thing, even getting to that stage where we're going to have that conversation with you is usually a result of us knowing about you for years before we even initiate that process. So I do suggest investors, especially passive investors, to really um, take time to build those relationships. I would more focus on the personalities, the gut feel perspective than the tactics and the strategies. Because when things go wrong, which every single deal does not go to pro forma. I've never invested in a deal. Okay. One deal that actually went to performance, very unique deal, not a real estate deal, but almost no deal goes to performance
is a matter of, or I guess I should say, how people act when what goes wrong is what really makes the difference in terms of risk reduction. And so you want to be investing with someone where you're confident that if they have to make some tough decisions on investors' behalf, they'll do the right thing. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. Uh, re- I mean, great advice for for people looking to passive invest. I think you know, kind of keeping those things in mind. And and in reality, investing with you through you is you're already doing a lot of that work, taking some of that you know, taking some of that risk, not necessarily from them, but hopefully alleviating some of the risk that might be there because you've done you have the ability to do a more robust due diligence process than you know, sort of your average you know, retail investor. Exactly correct. It's also just economically more viable. Like I said, you have a lot of savvy investors that listen to the show, but they all have different things to do. I mean, many of them are working W-2 jobs. Some of them are working really high income W-2 jobs. You just simply, you know, we just launched a Bitcoin mining fund. I cannot, as a physician, for example, fly to Nebraska, then take a connecting flight to a smaller airport in Nebraska, drive for three hours, all to look at what's basically like 18 wheelers filled with computers. And it's just like, okay, it's here. Got it. Now come home. Like that's not what most people want to spend their time doing. My team is eager to do that though, because we want to ensure that we're doing something that's real and we can check it off the box and all the other things that go along with, you know, traveling with the sponsors team and all that stuff. But you know, if you're not doing that, you want someone to do it on your behalf and why not do it on your behalf without paying them, which is kind of what our model is. Yeah. Sounds, sounds great. Hunter, let's, uh, let's switch gears. We'll, we'll get to the part where I get to ask you the questions I ask every guest. Um, and that way I don't, this is all fascinating, but I don't want to keep you here all day. Um, so first question is based on the name of the show being know your why, what, what is your why? What, what kind of drives you to this level of success? Geez, I'm sure you got some really cool answers from this. So, you know, there is no I, wrong answer. That is yeah. for sure. <laughs> so, um, I'm start, I've always been like, quote, you know, Tony Robbins. I'm not like the biggest Tony Robbins fan, but pretty much everyone in this world has been impacted by him in some way. His mountain of success is so large that he created so many sub mountains under him that pretty much everyone has had some direct impact by someone who's been directly impacted by Tony Robbins. Um, one of the things that Tony talks about is kind of the different ways that people are motivated. And, you know, the first thing is obviously income money, right? Like we have to have money to transact in order to, tra- we have to have things that we need. We must transact, all that stuff. But, um, you know, I'm really motivated by that concept, what I just outlined, that significance, that mountain, you know, I want to grow my mountain so high that other people who are part of that mountain will grow with me and build their own. So, you know, Tony's range, his mountain range is like Everest. I mean, I can list 10 people that are like top everything in their various sectors that are in part impacted by him. So I want to do the same thing in real estate. And so, and that's a ridiculous claim, by the way, it's a completely delusional claim. And I know it sounds silly, but that was the only reason I wrote my book the way I did. I believe you've read my book, um, Raising Capital for Real Estate. So I wrote that book because I thought maybe I could write one of the best books on the topic. Again, I know that sounds silly and like, that's a, it is a ridiculous claim, but you've got to understand that you've got to be a little delusional to be an entrepreneur that's going to write a book on a very 
competitive and potentially lucrative topic. So that's why I wrote that book like that, because I wanted to potentially move a couple people's lives in the right direction. And um, I have talked to a couple of people that have said that it did. And I want more of that. And so when, you know, my wife, for example, is like, when are you going to blank, 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 stop, retire, et cetera? It's like, dude, like if I go to a conference and someone is like, Hunter, you like help me start my business and become an entrepreneur. It's like, how much of that do you want? It's like, well, more. Yeah, all you know, of that. All of that. More. <laughs> and so we have this saying in my company where it's like, it's not about the thousands, the tens of thousands, the hundreds or the millions. It's about the multiples. So when someone says, how much more of that do you want? It's like a multiple of that, not a million dollars or even 10. It's just like a heck of a lot more. So I am motivated to some degree by significance, right? And mm-hmm. you got to be careful with that one because it can lead you down some weird paths. But I just love it when people are successful. Um, so I want to help them as ever I can. I think that's a great why. I think <laughs> being motivated by significance, I honestly think probably all of us are a little bit like all of the people that want some level, you know, all, all high achievers, I guess we just kind of put it in that, you know, you want, you want to have an impact. You want to maybe influence whatever. I mean, you want to influence millions of people, but you know, even if you influence a handful of people in a big way, that that's very fulfilling. So I, I, I totally get it. Make, makes, makes a ton of sense. Um, tell us something about yourself that isn't common knowledge. Maybe it's a special skill, a hobby, something you want to learn, uh, but just something to know you a little better. So I will, it's not, I already feel a little bit weird about talking about myself. So let me tell you just something cool that I listened to recently. Um, I listened to an interview that really resonated with me and it probably resonated with a lot of people. So I did not do very well in school at all. Um, that was not a joke about me and saying like, no one would hire me. Like I, that was really the reality situation. So, I mean, I really had to make it as an entrepreneur because there was no other option. And um, that was difficult from an emotional standpoint, because if you're only in school all day, and that's the way that you're being graded on how well you're going to do, which I know a lot of people listening to this felt like that, it can be difficult on your confidence for 20 years. And then all of a sudden you recognize that perhaps that has nothing to do with how well you're going to do and how happy you're going to be. For some people, that 20 years is too long. And the sense that once they graduate, by that time, they've hammered all of your creativity and confidence out of you so much so that you've accepted that you were not going to succeed. It sucks that I know there's a lot of people that are nodding along in agreement. Um, but I'm here to say that it is, if that's the case, then, man, you are in great company. You are in very good company because it turns out that the things that are required to be successful outside of those institutions have almost nothing to do with it. In fact, it's very much the opposite. The case in point is that in school, we go to class for 30, 40, 50, maybe an hour, and then we shift gears and we talk about something else. And to be successful, basically all you need is hyper-focus and hyper-obsession. So it's like the opposite. I don't want to go thin on a lot of different topics. I just want to be the best in the world at one thing. In pursuit of that, incredible, incredible things happen. So if you feel like you, you know, school, for example, didn't reflect like your potential, 
you're probably really, really right. And if you go listen to this interview that Mr. Beast did on Joe Rogan, it is amazing. You know, he is probably the number one YouTuber in the world. He has about a quarter billion subscribers across multiple platforms. And, you know, it's just very clear that if you are obsessed and focused, you can accomplish all your dreams in terms of making money. Now, just a quick little note. That has a ceiling once you start to make serious money. Um, that can You can be a millionaire by doing what I just outlined, but then there's a new skill that you have to start to learn, which is not just obsession and focus and your willingness to work, but you have to hone the skill of like team building operations, et cetera. And that's how you go from like 1 million to 10 to 100. But it's difficult to go to 2 million by just trying to work really hard. And um, there's a very good book about this called Ready, Fire, Aim that kind of talks about that. And there's very few books written about that topic because so few people are obsessed, focused, and willing to work. So they don't really need to ever have that conversation. But I do suggest the book because it'll kind of, uh, you know, put it out there in front of your your mind for the future. Yeah, that's great. Um, When people hear this and they want to reach out to you, what's the best way? One thing I always tell my coaching clients, one thing, don't confuse everybody. One thing, which is 100k2invest.com. It's a free summit, but you can upgrade to get the VIP thing. You'll be able to talk to the speakers. It's going to be totally awesome. And we have billions of dollars of assets under management speaking at this summit. So it's 100, the number 100k2, not the number two, 100k2invest.com. And we'll definitely put that in the show notes. So we'll make sure that that's very available available for people to find. Uh, final question, Hunter. What piece of advice would you give to someone who's maybe starting out in, in real estate and you know kind of looking to achieve the same levels of success that you have? What, what would you tell them in their, their beginning stages? So uh, there's just so many hacks out there because of the content, but the content can be noise. So I've done 400 interviews on my show and I've talked to people that have had very high levels of success in uh, hotels, development, land entitlement, people that will never invest in land entitlement, people that only invest in blank. And that is not the key. The tactics and the strategy is not the key. The key is that everybody had an individual perspective that allowed them to move with speed and confidence and that none of them were a watered down version of everyone. So with all the noise, you can feel like you want to be you want to be Jason, you want to be Grant Cardone, you want to be Hunter Tom, you want to be some like version of everybody and you just get all this noise and you don't know which direction to go, but money follows speed and simplicity and confidence. So what you need to do is uncover a playbook that you can replicate as opposed to try to be a watered down version of everyone. So what I suggest people do is go all in on a few personalities, few people, consume all of their available content, invest with them, whatever it is, and if you find a place where they went right, where you want to go left, before going left, find someone who went left and then go all in on their thing. And you can leapfrog, drastically shorten the, the growth curve of your, your knowledge. And um, But don't go and listen to like everyone's podcast all at the same time because it's going to confuse you because people disagree about these things. Yeah, no, it's it's true. And I, and, and I did it. I mean, it was like, I listened to every single podcast, every different opinion, and it's like every, you know, shiny and shiny object syndrome. You're just, you're just, there's so many different ways to have success in real estate, but you can't be successful doing them all. You have, you have to find yes. a, your spot. And so I think your, your advice there is, is perfect. I, I think that's fantastic. Um, 
Well, Hunter, thank you so much. I really do appreciate having you on the show. I, I love getting to sort of dive in on what you think is happening with the market. I think that'll be incredibly, incredibly valuable to people who listen. Uh, so thank you so much. Great to do it. Hey, thanks a lot. All right. We'll go ahead and we will sign out. I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.